Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode we will be looking at the Mummy's Tomb from 1942. Before we begin, just a little bit about the podcast and its format. In the first part of the episode, I will give a little bit of background information on the film. Then there will be a section on the historical accuracy of the film, as my specialist area is ancient Egypt. Finally, I will review the film and say whether I actually liked it or not. So, now, let's creep through the graveyards found in this film complete with their strangely floppy gravestones, which sway in the wind. Let us stare up at the moon as a shadowy figure, shrouded in bandages, approaches. Shall we run? No. Instead, we shall slowly shuffle backwards, raising our hands to our faces as we emit a piercing scream. Let us enter the world of the mummy's tomb. Much like with The Mummy 1932, which borrowed much of its music from Dracula, released the year before it, or much like The Mummy's Hand, which took much of its music from The Son of Frankenstein, which was released a year before it, The Mummy's Tomb took much of its music from The Wolfman, which, yeah, you guessed it, was released the year before it, in 1941. It will indeed be interesting to see which Mummy movie breaks this trend. This film is the first of several sequels to The Mummy's Hand, and during the filming of The Mummy's Hand in 1940, Tom Tyler, who played the villainous mummy Carice, was actually suffering greatly with arthritis, and in fact, this is part of the reason why the mummy looks so unnaturally twisted in the film. Sadly, by the time The Mummy's tomb was filmed, his condition had worsened to the point where he could no longer act, and so the role was passed on to Lon Chaney Jr., a man who was famous both due to his father, who played classic roles during the silent era, such as The Phantom of the Opera and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and also due to his own acting success in roles such as The Wolfman in 1941. Much like in the last film, Carice the Mummy is mostly just a brainless servant to the High Priest of Karnak, though having Long Cheney on board would have certainly added some name value to the film, and he was certainly a more than capable actor for the role. Although I was unable to track down the budget for the film, it does have the feeling of a film that was rushed out quite quickly and for very little money. And in fact, 
where the mummy's hand borrowed extensively from scene from The Mummy 1932, this film took much of its scene from The Mummy's Hand, with the majority of the first ten minutes being a really long recap. Now, you may remember that during the last episode, I was very forgiving of The Mummy's Hand making extensive use of archive footage, partly due to its incredibly small budget, and also because it felt like it at least used the footage effectively. Unfortunately, The Mummy's Tomb is far less inventive with its use of footage, and as such, I cannot give this film the same courtesy. The footage here almost has a feeling of being used simply to pad out the film to get the runtime to the hour mark. During the film, several of the actors reprise their roles. Once again, we see Dick Foran as Stephen Banning and Wallace Ford as Babe. However, as the film is set 30 years after the last one, they have been made to look much older, and to be fair, the makeup actually doesn't look too bad. The best return, though, comes from George Zucco, who plays the villainous Andotep. Admittedly, he is only in the film for about five minutes, but he does appear to be convincingly withered. Anyway, I feel I am in danger of this section becoming a review, and as said in the introduction, that part of the episode comes last, so let us instead turn our attention to the historical accuracy of the film. Now, there are a few bits in the film that are repeated from The Mummy's Hand, so I will not go into these in too much detail. Firstly, the term High Priest of Karnak is used. I feel that this is supposed to be the High Priest of Amon, though it is also portrayed as a secretive cult, so this is quite ambiguous to be fair. However, it is worth noting that at the beginning of the film, Mehmet Bey, the antagonist and new High Priest of Karnak, does pray to Amon Ra, so... At least he is referring to the correct god here, if I am indeed correct in my assumption. Mehmet Bey then transports the mummy Caris to America, and on the ship he refuses to pray by the mummy's side in front of someone who is not part of the cult. Egyptian religion was secretive by nature, and so it can be argued to a degree that this is correct, although I do have to forgive a lot to say that. During this film, it is made known that the tanner leaves, which are used to keep the mummy alive and in greater quantities allow him to rise and hunt his victims, must be taken when the moon is out. Although this is not a mistake, as tanner leaves are purely a fictional invention, I feel it is a shame they did not link this to Khonsu, the moon god, who was also the son of Amon. Khonsu had one of the main temples in Karnak Temple Complex, alongside Amon. Once again, this is not necessarily a mistake, but it does feel like something that could have been added if a bit more research had been undertaken during the writing process. There is one scene in this film that stands out above the others in terms of accuracy. About 40 minutes in, John Banning, Stephen Banning's son, enlists the help of a man named Professor Norman to look at the dust left on the necks of the victims and at a piece of fabric left at the scene of one of the crimes. The doctor talks about the reddish-brown marks on the bandages which he identifies as myrrh. Not only is he correct that myrrh was used in mummification, but he is also correct that myrrh is reddish-brown in colour. He then goes on to say the name of the tree it came from and rightly explains that it comes from Africa. Further, he even goes on to say he found traces of cedar oil and sodium carbonate, both of which were also used in mummification. During the scene, they say that the bandages are too old to date. At first, I did think that this was a mistake as bandages can be carbon dated, 
But then I remembered that the film came out in 1942 and carbon dating did not come into use until the late 1940s. So fair enough, I guess. Unfortunately, this scene does end on a bit of a mistake. Professor Norman finds a hieroglyph on the bandage and says that it must be almost 3,000 years old. He then dates the bandage to the reign of King Amenathus. There are four kings named Amenathus in ancient Egypt, who are also known as Amenhotep. And the latest one, who changed his name to Akhenaten, died in around 1330-ish BCE. So... The mummy would have actually been about 3,300 years old, not almost 3,000 years old. This may seem a bit pedantic of me, but it is a genuine mistake. However, overall this scene is actually pretty good accuracy-wise, and it does show that unlike the mummy's hand, there was at least some research done for this film. Later in the film, the antagonist, Mehmet Bey, kidnaps Isabel Evans, the fiancé of John Banning, with the wish to have a child with her that can become the next High Priest of Karnak. He then goes on to state that the High Priests of Karnak are raised in the tombs of ancient Egypt. If the High Priests of Karnak are supposed to be referring to the High Priests of Amun, then they absolutely were not brought up in the tombs of ancient Egypt, though once again it is possible that the High Priests of Karnak are a separate fictional creation. This brings an end to the historical accuracy section of the episode. Now it is time to review the film. Contemporary reviews for the film were generally pretty bad and modern ones are not much better. Generally, it is seen as a bit of an uninspired, cliched horror that simply borrows from other films without adding much new. I will say, however, there are some elements of the film I do like. I think that Lon Chaney was a good replacement for Tom Tyler, and I also found the casting of John Banning to be pretty good, as he does look like the son of Stephen Banning. The actual plot for the film, whilst a little generic, does at least make sense and is serviceable. Ultimately, the film is set 30 years after the last one, and Mehmet Bey and the mummy Carice are trying to get revenge on those who desecrated the tomb of Ananka. I also like that some of the callbacks to the last film actually moved the plot forward. For instance, once again, the mummy leaves marks on his victim's necks, and this allows Babe to realise what is going on as he has seen these marks before. As opposed to the mummy's hand, where the villain kidnapping the heroine felt very shoehorned in, at least in this film, there are some precursors to it. When Mehmet Bey sees Isabel Evans for the first time, he is clearly attracted to her, and you can see his plans change from that moment. He at least has some motive for changing his plans and it serves as his undoing in a logical way. And of course, Kerry's kidnaps her the day before her wedding to John Banning, which adds a little more peril and drama to the situation. Although contemporary reviews complained about the mummy's tomb borrowing too much from other films, I will admit I got a kick out of seeing the villagers grabbing their torches and pitchforks and chasing the mummy. This scene was clearly inspired by Frankenstein, and although I do agree the film borrowed too much, this at least made me smile. Finally, I actually thought Mehmet's Bay comeuppance was pretty well done. He is holding a gun towards John Banning. A shot is heard, and then it turns out that someone in the crowd has shot Mehmet Bay. Again, this is not necessarily an original way of killing the main villain, but it was executed well and the timing was good. 
Unfortunately, a lot of other elements in the film leave a lot to be desired. Firstly, the majority of the deaths were pretty bad. For instance, when Carice kills Stephen Banning, all Banning does is shuffle very slowly backwards, raising his arms. It is quite obvious he could have simply walked towards the door and left the room. Another man, Jim, fires two shots from a shotgun at the mummy and then faints out of shock. Later, he is in the hospital and it turns out he was paralysed by fear. His fainting comes out of nowhere and is really badly done and the expression on his face as he lays in the hospital bed comes off as more funny than it does scary. When Jane Banning, Stephen Banning's sister, is murdered, she lets out a piercing scream as she is being strangled. I'm not really sure how she is screaming while her neck is being restricted. I suppose at least when it comes to Babe, played by Wallace Ford, he at least attempts to make it look convincing. He rushes down an alley and tries to climb a wall. He then fights until his last breath. Unfortunately, this and the death of Mehmet Bey are the only two ones that are done even remotely well, and with Babe, it is still clear he could have gotten away by simply running past the mummy. Now, many of you may think I'm being very unfair with these observations. After all, victims acting in odd ways when the mummy attacks is something of a trope and a well-known and for some even well-loved one. Unfortunately, I feel with this film such deaths are taken to another illogical level and although they do still hold a weird charm to begin with, it gets a bit tiring by the end of the film. I think this is largely because the viewer is not given any major reason to root for the heroes and they don't have much personality. Even Stephen Banning and Babe who were in the previous films seem like completely different characters and lack any of the charm they had in the mummy's hand. I do wonder if at the time people complained about the humour in the mummy's hand, as in this film it is almost entirely missing. Regardless of whether one actually liked the humour in the mummy's hand, it did at least add some colour to the characters and gave the audience a reason to care about them. Unfortunately, not only do they take away the humour here, they do not replace it with anything, and so all that is left is blandness. I will say, however, there is some unintentional humour in the film. When John Banning is fighting the mummy in the burning house at the end, not only is it weirdly funny seeing John Banning waving a torch towards the mummy, who looks legitimately terrified, but when the mummy does eventually start to burn, it is really obvious that the flames are nowhere near him. I do suppose that the film was made in 1942, however, so I will give the effects here a pass. At the end of the film, John and Isabel get married. However, as already mentioned, the viewer has not been given a chance to get to know or care about the characters, so it doesn't really mean that much. Overall, it does feel like there's the outline of a good film here, but in my opinion, it does not entirely achieve it. Whilst The Mummy 1932 was an interesting film with an excellent performance by Boris Karloff, and whilst The Mummy's hand did at least have a lot of charm, I do not feel that The Mummy's tomb achieved either of these things. If you like this film, then more power to you, but over the years I've seen this film a few times and it's not really grown on me. I feel that this is the first Mummy movie I have reviewed that I don't particularly like. Thank you very much for listening and please join me next time 
when we will be looking at the next film in this series, The Mummy's Ghost from 1944. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.